the Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is James Shore. James teaches, writes, and consults on agile software development. He's the co-author of the classic Agile How-To Guide, The Art of Agile Development. Welcome, James. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, so uh, before we... Uh, jump into the meat of things. Would you give our listeners a little bit additional introduction to yourself? Perhaps you know, tell them how you got started in the industry. Yeah, I'm. You know, I'm a I'm a hardcore introverted geek uh, who's been a programmer ever since I was a kid. And uh, I got I got started in the industry when I was. So I'm going to betray my age, but I was involved with something called Fidonet back in the day, and I ran a, a what was called a point which is basically just a way of contributing on this sort of online pre-Usenet, pre-internet forum thing. And I was on the on one of the programming forums there and somebody saw me posting about the stuff I was doing as a hobby with programming and they said, "Do you want to come work for us?" And I said, "Oh yeah." <laughs> and uh I mean I was in college at the time I was like, "Yep, I would not mind uh, getting out of this college rat race and doing some some professional development." And so they hired me at a ridiculously cheap rate, I realize now. <laughs> and uh I got started as in as in the programming and programming as a professional. And um ever since the beginning, I've always I've always been really interested in what does it mean to make how how does a team of people work together to make software that's bigger than any one person can keep in their head, right? It's a really interesting problem because all the really interesting software is in that category. Unless you're into like the, you know, unless you're really into algorithms, you can see some very interesting stuff algorithmically that's super tiny. But I'm interested in, to, I'm interested in like big software. How does that all work? How do you get people rowing in the same direction? <laughs> So um, that's what I've spent my, basically my career on is just trying to understand that more and more. And that's what led me to Agile. Uh, in 1999, I was working with a company that was doing waterfall hard, harder than I did, I'd ever <laughs> seen it done before. I was really happy about that because this was the obviously right way to work. And it was an utter disaster. It, it did not work well. It turned out that at least at this company, the more we did it by the book, the worse it was uh, that this way of a developing software worked, had worked despite the process, not because of it. And so um, that sort of gave me a, a like, what, how have I been wasting my life? Because I really <laughs> believed in this approach to developing software. And I got, uh, I found something called feature-driven development that seemed like it might solve those problems. And then that led me to extreme programming and Ward Cunningham's Wiki Wiki Web. And I, um, I was one of the earlier people to adopt and try extreme programming and write about my experiences on the Wiki. And um, now, 21 years later, I've just finished updating my book about the subject. Yeah. So what are you working on these days? Well, like I said, the book just came out. So I've spent 
over a year, maybe a year and a half, most of that nearly full-time work on the book, uh, just completely revising it and updating it. But I am a consultant. Uh, people hire me because they want to be better at Agile. And um, so right now I'm working with with a couple of companies doing some intensive work. One of them I'm helping um, move to a very much, very self-organized team in control of uh, the situation. Uh, what, what I would call large-scale Agile, which doesn't mean hundreds and hundreds of people, but it means multiple interoperating teams. Uh, in this case, about 40 people. And I'm about to start with a company who's looking for help. Well, I am starting now with a company who's looking help for help with continuous delivery. So that would be things like uh, test-driven development, uh, evolutionary design, continuous integration, and so forth. Okay. And the book is, of course, The, the Art of Agile Development, second edition. So why the new edition? Why the, the second edition? Yeah, well, the first edition came out in 2007. So that was 14 years ago. It came out, <laughs> came out November 2007. I, the print version of the new edition just came out like last week. So basically November 2021. So if I did my math right, which I probably didn't, that was 14 <laughs> years. I, I hope that was correct. Otherwise, I'll be super embarrassed at some and that's point. That's a really future. long time in internet time. So it is a really long time. So, so Riley came to me and said, do you want to do a second edition of this? And I'd been thinking about it for a while, but it's a lot of work. Like I said, it was over a year, nearly full-time work. And I said, well, why do, you, why do people want it? And they said, well, we, we're still getting requests at things like the O'Reilly, O'Reilly, of course, the publisher, uh, O'Reilly um, Conference for Architects. Uh, they're asking us, you know, is there going to be an update to this? And I thought about it. I was like, you know what? Things have changed a lot in 14 years. In 2007, Agile was not very widespread. Uh, had a lot of interest. People were talking about it, but it wasn't really right, widespread. So the first edition was all about, you've heard about this thing. You want to do it. How do you do that practically? What, like This is very much a how-to guide. How do you really do it for real? And I brought in all the experience I'd had with extreme programming and, and Scrum and Lean and other things. And I sort of said, well, cohesively, here's how you can make it all work. 14 years later, everybody thinks they've done Agile. <laughs> Everyone's doing it. Yeah, but but the <laughs> operative word there is think, right? Because I would say about the same number or maybe even less of the people now are doing Agile that were doing it back in 2007. Um, and we've learned a bunch of new things. There's things like uh, DevSec, Biz, Data, Star, Ops, uh, whatever you want to call it, Um that that have some genuinely really good ideas in them. Cloud is is present uh, in a way that it was not in two thousand seven. Um, there's so there's a lot of, of things that have changed, but more than anything else, and we, I've I've put in a lot and some some interesting sort of tactical practices like self selection and and um, and mob programming, which you may have heard of, as well as. Uh, you may have heard of this this uh, little thing that people are calling remote work. I don't know. It's not super popular. Uh, so there's a bunch of stuff that have changed. But more than anything else, the audience for the book has changed. 2007, it was the early, the, the early adopters who were trying to convince their companies to try it. And now there's all these people who've had a terrible Agile experience because the ideas of Agile have been corrupted and perverted. And so I wanted to write a book to say, 
hey, it doesn't have to be this way. It's not about micromanagement. It's not about, you know, being a points monkey that stands up every day and throws poo at the other monkeys. That's not how it has to be. In fact, if, if it's that way, you're doing something wrong. What what are some of those misunderstandings or or corruptions that that you've seen over the last decade or more? Uh, I think fundamentally the biggest one, like the fundamental issue, if I had to choose just one thing, is that nobody's understands what agile is. They are people are using agile as a project management methodology. But that is not what it is. It's not a way of controlling your programmers. It's uh, it's a philosophy of software development. It's not something you can do. It is only a way of working that you have to customize to your situation. And to do that requires two things. First, it requires your organization to make investments in changing the constraints of the organization. And second, it requires the team members to make an investment in making it work in their situation. So you got to customize the ideas of Agile to your situation, and you've got to change your organization's structures and constraints to allow the Agile philosophy to work. Because it's fundamentally a really, really unusual way of working based on how most companies are used to thinking about software development. Uh, in that it's not about saying what we're going to do and when we're going to do it and then assigning work to programmers until it gets done. That's not what Agile's about. It's not a project management methodology. So, um, so yeah, you got to do these two things. I'm very happy to uh, talk more about that, what that means, but um, you've got to be able to do those two things. Otherwise, you're not going to have success with Agile. And that's what I see is that people don't change. They don't make an investment in changing their constraints. They don't, um, they don't allow their teams to customize the process to their specific needs. Uh, it's sort of a cookie cutter. It becomes a micromanagement tool more than anything else. And um, that breaks my heart because this was created by programmers for programmers who understand what the needs of programming is and have seen how if you only think about programming, how that also fails um, to create some to create great outcomes for businesses, programmers, and uh, the people involved. So, what does being successful in an agile organization or or on an agile team look like? Does that include things like autonomy and self organization and cross functionality, or what what does it take to be successful? adopting agile practices? Well, I think that's, that's the fundamental question, right? It's, that's, that's really what is success look like? And I'm going to, I'm going to start out by defining that by defining what it isn't, because I think in most organizations, they still have a traditional mindset about uh, software development, which is a project oriented mindset. And the project oriented mindset is a predictive mindset. It is one that says we are successful when we say what we're going to do and when we're going to do it, and then we do what we said we were going to do when we said we were going to do it for the amount of money we said it would cost. That is a predictive mindset. That's sort of a classic uh, definition of success. And agile can, you can 
think in an agile way and achieve those sorts of results. But if you do, you're misunderstanding fundamentally what agile is about. Um, and this is one half of what agile about is about the other half as Martin Fowler, uh, very eloquently says is that, uh, it's about people over uh, people rather than process. And we can talk about that more in a moment, but let me go back to this adaptive rather than predictive part. So agile is adaptive rather than predictive, rather than saying what we're going to do and when, and we're successful if we do what we said, which makes a lot of sense at first. But if you think about it, there's nothing in that definition that says that you got your business got any value out of it. There's nothing in that definition that said customers use your product. There's nothing in your definition says that people bought it. There's nothing in that definition that says that you didn't go out of business. It just said you were going to do what you said you were going to do. Um, that, that mindset fundamentally assumes that there are business people over here who know what's up and code monkeys over here who deliver what they say. But Agile from the beginning has always been about bringing business and development perspectives together so that we can get the best of both worlds. So success, you asked me what success in Agile was, and I'm finally going to answer that question. Success in Agile is about three things. It's about delivering an organizational success, improved revenue, improved adoption, uh, under, uh, improving brand projection. There's a whole bunch of things that have value to a business, uh, improving capacity, improving retention, improving morale. There's you know many, many things that you could say are, are valuable from a business perspective. So it's about creating that sort of success. It's about having a technical success because I've seen so many organizations, especially startups that have that technical success and then drown under the weight of their code so they can no longer make changes. So it's about having software that you can continue to modify and improve. And it's about personal success. It's about the people being involved with the work, feeling like this is something that they was a, was a valuable use of their limited number of hours on this earth. They, uh, the people who are consuming it are happy to, to have had it done for them. And the people who are building it are happy to have had been part of producing it. So organizational, technical, and personal success, you will notice there is nothing in there about what and when, or you know, doing this thing on this date. It's about creating the results. And the way you do that is by observing how things are going and changing your plans when you come up with better ideas. There's got to be a discussion around value as well, right? We're, we're all employed because we're trying to deliver value to someone that is willing to pay for it, right? So and I've seen and worked with a lot of teams that focus too much on points and we, we must end the sprint by delivering the amount of points that the team committed to. Whereas really what we what we want to do is ensure that we're delivering value so that the, the company or the business or the client will continue to pay us. That's right. I have the ability to pay us. You know, I've, I've, I work with a lot of business founders and executives because I've been around the block for a while and, and that's, that's the folks who hire me. Um, and for some of them, uh, for many of them, I think, especially the ones that are running their own business, the business, uh, the money is about being able to continue to play the game. The money is not necessarily the end goal. It's about being able to, uh, to do the thing that they want to do, which is you know, I'm not going to say that's true for everybody, but it's uh, because some people do just want the money. <laughs> some people are just greedy, you know, bastards. But uh, some, 
for for a lot of people, the money is the ability to keep going, to to hire people, to employ people, to deliver a great result, to change the world in some small way. Um, everybody, of course, wants to change the world in a big way, but most of us don't get that opportunity. Uh, but the ability to provide value to somebody and to um, and to create value for for your employees. That's, that's really what it's about. It's not about making the money. It's about keeping going. Um, I'm not sure where I was going with that, but that's what you said sparked, sparked that, uh, sparked that in me. Yeah. And it seems like too, the, the, there's a certain amount of accountability that we have to have to ourselves and in accountability that we have to our coworkers and our teammates to understand that we are trying to achieve that goal of, continuing to get get a paycheck and continuing to to flow uh, worth into the company so that they can continue to invest in additional features and, and additional functionality and kind of continue on that that train of progress yeah you know this you mentioned earlier the story points and the stand-ups and so forth it's not like those things aren't useful I mean, they're not the only way of tracking your work. And I actually talk about an alternative in the book. But um, but so many people think Agile, that is, that's all Agile is. When in fact, that is the least important, down in the details, tactical aspect. Really what Agile is about is understanding how to create value from an organizational perspective and how to do that in a way that's technically and humanely sustainable. Uh, and everything else from there is tactics. And there's a lot to that. I mean, I would say that, you know, the vast majority of my book is about the tactics. How do you actually do that? Because, you know, we can talk sort of big picture philosophy all day, but that's not going to help you. That's not going to help you cut code, right? But if you don't start with that big picture view, if you don't start with that understanding that what we're here to do is to identify and deliver value in multiple ways, um, then what are you doing? Like what, how, how do you know you're on the right track if you don't know what your goal is? And, and I think, um, you know, one, one of the things you said earlier, you were talking about how agile is adaptive or, uh, reactive, right? It's not, it's not predictive, but I think there's a conflation between that that big picture vision and this is i think where where businesses so easily fall into that predictive model is they're they're starting out and and they're you know they have this grand idea right and and so to them it's like well the project is accomplishing this this idea right accomplishing this vision but that's somewhere somewhere we go awry because we're we end up moving into that predictive like this is the solution that accomplishes that vision as opposed to holding on to this is the vision. Does our solution fulfill that vision? Right. Uh, and I think that that is sort of like uh, the difference between an agile mindset versus that predictive mindset. Yeah. I think it's a big part of it. Um, you know, it's, I think especially for engineers and when I work with startups who are more engineer led, uh, I tend to see this, although not not always, because some of those founders are wicked smart. But um, 
engineers tend to jump, well, not just engineers, everybody tends to jump to solution space. Um, I, I actually, it's absolutely not just engineers because anybody who's done any sort of requirements analysis works, you know, that if you ask somebody, what problem are you trying to solve? They will tell you, well, I really, really want you to put this button here, right? <laughs> yes. yeah. It's like, but, but let me repeat the question. What, what problem are you trying to solve? Um, but yes, jumping to solution space rather than problem space is, is just tempting for everybody. I think it's human nature. And I think part of our job as engineers is to under notice when that happens and get to get back into problem space. But um, agile is adaptive, not reactive so much, but adaptive and not predictive. And what that means is, yes, you understand what the big picture goal is, but you don't necessarily flesh that out into a lot of detail. Instead, you say, okay, this is our big picture goal. And what do we know that the first step towards accomplishing that goal is? Or as you tend to see in more startup oriented situations, what do we not know that we need to figure out? What is our first hypothesis that we want to test? Um, you've probably heard of minimum viable uh, product, right? Everybody talks about MVP. What most people don't realize is that MVP is actually about the minimum viable hypothesis. What is it that we're going to test? And what is the smallest thing that we can ship or do to test that hypothesis to, to find out our next step? So you know your big picture goal you know, what you want to accomplish in six months or a year, but you don't know every single step between here and there. So you start out with what are we going to do? What do we know we need to do first? Or what do we know we need to figure out first? And you take that and you break that down and say, okay, well, let's, let's really chew on that and figure out, well, what are we going to do? And then how are we going to evaluate that we're getting closer to doing that first thing or answering that first question? And how can we learn if there's a better way so that when we do learn new things, we can adapt our plans. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. There are multiple ways of, of being agile. And Diana Larson and I create something called the Agile Fluency Model, which identifies four zones. And the three major zones are focusing, delivering, and optimizing. And as somebody who's been immersed in this for 21 years, 22, I, I don't even want to admit <laughs> a lot of years, um, I tend to jump to like, the the mecca of of agile ideas which is focusing delivering and optimizing zones all together and this idea that um we're going to identify our hypotheses and change our plans to you know identify ways of learning and change our plans to take advantage of the most of the learning that's op the optimizing zone and when i ask teams you know which zones do you think you've achieved fluency in less than five percent say that they're in the optimizing zone and less than half say that their company would even let them do it. So for, for everybody who's listening, yes, that is the ideal of agile, but it's not everything there is to agile. Um, the focusing zone is really just about being able to focus on understanding the value your organization thinks they want and focusing on that value. And the delivering zone is about being able to deliver high quality, low defect software at, on a regular cadence so that whenever your business partners say go, you ship by pressing a button. Like you can literally ship by pressing a button at the drop of a hat. Um, and those two zones, they have a lot of value and that enough. If, if, if you can do either one of those, um, I'm happy. You don't have to do this sort of highfalutin optimizing <laughs> stuff, which I imagine some of your listeners are listening like this guy, what is wrong with him? There is even if it's a good idea, there is no way that's ever happening where I'm at right now. Yeah, as, as another person that's um, into their third decade in software development, um, 
I have seen where it, it, it takes uh, a, a heroic effort in order to get software into a production-like environment, let alone production itself. So there, there's something to be said for delivering the quality, delivering reliably, mm-hmm. uh, d- delivering bu- at the push of a button. Uh, yeah. It takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of effort to get to that point. And it takes having learned a lot of lessons to have gotten there. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what nearly half of my book is about. Uh, the, the first, the very first part of the book is understanding what agile is and understanding how to create the conditions for success for whichever flavor of agile you want to use. Uh, the second part is how do you achieve fluency in this focusing zone? And the third part is about how do you achieve fluency in the delivering zone? And I would say that both of those two parts make up the vast majority of the book and, um, are about the same size. And because, yeah, there's a lot to that. That's things like test-driven development, continuous integration, evolutionary design, building for operation, uh, incident analysis, lots and lots of stuff. And you had mentioned working with uh, larger organizations and organizations with multiple teams. Are there tips and tricks to dealing with these larger team structures? Or uh, is it just more of the same, just more communication or more collaboration? Or how does that work? It's... Uh, so the book is nearly 500 pages. Uh, the first edition was 400 pages, and the second edition <laughs> was supposed to be 400 pages, but I cannot, as you're already discovering, I cannot keep my mouth shut when asked. <laughs> so it it grew by 20%, uh, or 25%, I don't know, public math again, probably not what I should be doing. Um, and that's I, I, that's as thick as I want to be. That's already thicker than some, pe- some people want it to be. Uh, luckily, it's designed to be a reference, so you can sort of flip through, and the individual sections are only about 10 pages. Um, but so we do have a chapter um, on scaling agility, but it's not the focus of the book because the reality is in order to be agile at scale, in order to have multiple inter- interdependent teams who are working on the same product or suite of products in order for that to succeed each team has to be fluent in whatever zones agile fluency zones that you think are right for your organization so if you try to do the scale agile at scale without having the fluency in the individual teams it's going to just fall fall down it's a house of cards Uh, so this book is um, really about how do you create a fluent team in one team but I know the scaling is a big question for a lot of people. So putting a whole chapter on scaling was something that we did. Uh, what I say we, I, I have uh, my co-author Shane Warden wasn't able to contribute any new words to this edition, but he he and I talked about what we wanted to do for the book. Um, this, this is something we felt was important to have in the second edition, even though really doing it just, it would probably be a whole nother 500 page book uh, on its own. But we do talk about, well, how do you fit this all together? And what are the various other resources that you can go to, uh, to find out more? Yeah, I would imagine if you can do it on a team, that's, that's something to be said. And, and you can look to, uh, to duplicate that or, or to um, have that same successful outcome on an additional team. But if you can't get there on a single team, then trying to scale that probably doesn't, uh, doesn't work either. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so given that this is a much more of a philosophy, agile, true, a true understanding of agile is much more of a philosophy. What, what do you say to people who are devs on a team who are saying, Hey, we're not doing agile, whether they're 
people think they are or not. How is that something that they can influence or is this something where it's like, I have to wait till management can allow this to happen? Um, it is definitely something they can influence, but let me be honest. Um, that's, that's how my career got started. Um, I, I started out having this great experience with extreme programming and in 2000, you know, really wanted to keep doing it discovered that nobody was doing it. So if I wanted to keep doing it, I had to consult and started out doing a lot of grassroots influencing and trying to, to teach in that way. And it's heartbreaking work. It can be done, but it is heartbreaking work. Uh, Martin Fowler has a great, great saying, which is change your organization or change your organization. <laughs> and honestly, you can change your organization from within as a grassroots developer, particularly if you're well-respected in the organization, so maybe a bit on the more senior side, or you can gather the support of people who are more senior, There's some champions. And there is a great book about how to do this called More Fearless Change by Mary Lynn Manns and Linda Rising. Strongly recommend it for anybody who wants to influence change in the organization. This is something to do if you love your organization uh, and really want to stick with it. And it can be heartbreaking and exhausting. And the better way to join an agile organization is to find one that's already working the way you want to work and change your organization. How do you figure that out in the interview? Because they all say, <laughs> yep, we're doing agile and whatnot. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I wish I, wish I knew. Um, do you I, have I a list you that you like... These are James Shore approved agile organizations. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like it sounds like a business opportunity. So, so everybody's listening, you know, just uh, bring your checkbook and give me a call. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I don't want to be too pessimistic. The book does have s several chapters about how do you ch how do you create change in an organization? Um, and to, I want to come back to the question you asked earlier, which is how do you do this? Because although the preamble is really the easiest way is to join an organization that's already doing it, the truth is, is that everybody says they're doing it. But, you know, finding a company that's really doing it can be difficult. Um, the, the, the true answer is if you're doing this on your own, you need to do it from two sides. First, you need to have grassroots support so bottom up, and you need to have executive support top down. You need to meet in the middle um, with the middle management who's typically is charged with preserving the culture of the organization and is least excited about making major changes to process. Um, and if you're somebody who's in the grassroots, if you're not an executive listening to this, if you're in the grassroots, there are going to be some of those middle managers who are truly innovative thinkers. And you want to you want to find them and cultivate them as champions to help you figure out the process. But to be successful with Agile, it's not just, you know, sending people to a bunch of two-day Scrum training courses, which has done a really good job of spreading the, the word Agile around the world. If not, and, and some of the ideas, but not a whole lot of genuine change. Um, uh, it's not enough to just send people to training. You, you've got to change. For Agile to work, you have to change the constraints of the organization. Um, you have to invest serious time in, in learning, uh, not training courses, but people putting the ideas into practice, which will slow them down. If you can get people, if your organization is appropriate to take an adaptive approach rather than a predictive approach, 
you need to start influencing that change. That's really hard. And so there's quite a bit in the book about how do you be predictive and still be agile in other ways. Um, you need to create teams. Agile is all about teamwork. So you need to, uh, the, the, the resource, I hate it when people call, when, when managers call people resources, we need a resource on this. Well, in agile, the resource is the team and you assign work to teams rather than people to work. So uh, you need to think about your team as a resource, which means you need to create long-lived teams who have a cross-section of expertise. They've got to have that business expertise. They've got to have development expertise, uh, operational expertise, test testing expertise. Uh, not necessarily all of those in all cases. It depends on which zones you're, you're shooting for again. Um, because the book is nothing if not wildly pragmatic. I, I know that you can't all do all these things. Um, so these are all the kinds of things that you need to look at. Uh, I need to talk to, you need to get a commitment from your senior leaders, whoever is in charge of your part of the organization. It doesn't have to be the whole organization at once, but whoever's in part charge of the part of the organization you're in needs to commit to changing as many of these constraints as possible. Otherwise, it's likely not to work. And then you also got to talk to the people who are affected on the ground. You have to get your colleagues on board. You have to get the stakeholders on board. You got to get management on board. It's a lot of work, totally worth it. And I lay out exactly how to do it. It's a lot of work. Yeah, I find if, if you can assemble the right team of individuals together and ensure that they're successful on the tasks that they choose to to tackle you know tr trying to be so good that you that they can't ignore you be be so successful that they want to assemble additional teams like this team so they can start reaping the benefits the, the reality is is that for for most teams what's slowing them down isn't the process they're using it's not the way they're developing software it's the roadblocks that the company is putting in their way often unintentionally. Um, for example, uh, one of the things you can do as a team to immediately make your life better is to uh, remove the friction in your development process. Uh, create an automated build. Get down to the point where you can do something and get feedback in less than five seconds. Not necessarily run the whole thing, but get feedback on the specific thing you're working on right now. If you can get feedback in less than five seconds, you're going to see your life improve dramatically. But if your organization does not allow you to have that level of control over your build, if, uh, if you're using a, a build system that others provide for you, you're not going to be able to do that. Uh, and those are the sorts of roadblocks that people throw in your way. Another thing, if you can focus for two days at a time rather than having a meeting every other hour, that will do huge things for your ability to concentrate and find the slack and bandwidth to do these other sorts of improvements. But if your organization is one where uh, it's a meeting-oriented culture, especially in the remote era where you tend to get more of that, um, again, it doesn't matter which process you're using. If you don't have focus time as an engineer, you're not going to be effective. Yeah. Um, one, one thing that I will say in it seems to, especially with, with what you've said about um, Agile being um, this philosophy and not just a uh, a project management, a, you know, a way to 
to micromanage developers and whatnot. Uh, I one of the biggest. I think I think there's a lot of developers out there that I see that are more than happy to like look and point the fingers at uh, you know the business side and the project manager folks and and whatnot and say look you're not doing agile correctly you're not you're not agile um, but what about all the dev practices that come along with agile and I, I don't see a lot of developers necessarily being super willing to to take on those things. Uh, you've talked about extreme programming and mentioned it several times, but are those dev processes absolutely necessary to agile in, in its in its in order to to actually be and do agile? Well, so let's uh, remember there's there's multiple zones of fluency and agile, different ways that uh, teams tend to uh, tend to approach this agile philosophy and. Uh, one is focusing, which is the idea that the team is working together to uh, deliver the most or to work on the most important things for the business first, to really be thinking about value, not just being task monkeys. Another is delivering. This is the ability to deliver high quality, low defect code whenever the business says they're ready to take what you got. I would say that if you're only interested in focusing fluency, um, you'd you can continue with the development practices you have right now. Uh, there is a lot you can learn about how to focus on value. Now, I don't think it's long-term sustainable. I think you do tend to build up a lot of technical debt if you're in an environment where we're saying, rather than plan everything out up front, we are going to adapt our plans. And so I don't think focusing fluency on its own is sustainable. But the reality is, is I've seen companies go quite a long distance with pretty crappy code bases. The problem is it's not fun as a developer to be in that environment. It, it, it kind of sucks. Um, unless you're the one who are starting it and then like fleeing off to another project. That can be fun. <laughs> um, but if you want to have that delivering fluency, then yeah, you got to have the engineering practices. And uh, I have some that I know are a really good place to start. I'm not saying that that's the only way uh, the nature of each of these zones in, in the book, I say, this is how you can tell when you're fluent. And it mm. doesn't say you're mm. doing this or this or this. It's saying you're seeing these results, such as uh, business representative access to ship. We can ship with less than 10 minutes of effort in less than an hour. If you can do that, you've got one piece of what it means to be fluent. I'm not saying how to do it, but you probably want to know how. And so that's what the <laughs> most of the book is about. But you don't have to do it the way I say it. It's a starting point. Uh, every Agile is always about adapting what you learn to your specific situation on the ground. But what I will tell you is that to achieve that delivering fluency, to be able to ship high-quality, low-defect software whenever your business partners say they're, they're ready, there's a couple of things that I know work well. First off, Agile is a team sport. So you need to have some sort of collaborative approach to coding. Um, that's called collective code ownership. Everybody has the right and responsibility to improve what any part of the code. Not just the right, but the responsibility to improve any part of the code. Two ways that I know really work really well to do that, pair programming and mob programming. Now, I know that makes people sort of, you know, iffy. So in the book, every single practice that I suggest also says, here are some things you can do instead. Here's them other ways, but I know these work. Um, another thing is you need the ability to uh, be sure that your code is always working, that what you check in actually works. You know what's really good for that? Test-driven development. <laughs> 
Third, if you're working as a team and everybody has the response right and responsibility to improve whichever code they see when they see the opportunity, means you're doing a lot of refactoring. Uh, well, if you don't know how to refactor, you're going to have trouble. So you need the ability to refactor your code. But if people are refactoring all the time uh, and like having different opinions about what the variable should be named or how the classes should be broken down, very quickly you're going to diverge. So you need to be integrating all your code every <laughs> couple of hours. That's called continuous integration. Uh, it's not a, not a tool. You've probably heard of the CI server. That's not continuous integration. That's a build server. Continuous integration is merging all your code into the same branch every couple of hours. It's that simple, but not necessarily that easy. So you've got people who are now working on the same code base, make, they know it works because they're running all the tests and they are writing high quality tests, which is a whole subject of its own. It also has a whole section in the book. Um, now, the, the, uh, you talk to your business partners, they say, you know what, we're doing adaptive planning and we just learned something entirely new. We didn't plan for this. You didn't plan for it, but we need to go in this direction anyway. Can your code handle that? That's called evolutionary design. When you write your code to handle changes in, in the direction of the code, where it can go in any different direction, it's evolutionary design. It's three parts, simple design, incremental design, reflective design. That is understanding the design of existing code rather than predicting in advance what the design needs to be. Um, and your code's probably going to be uh, shipping onto a server somewhere. Not, not everybody. I mean, some of you are doing embedded development. Some of you are doing desktop apps. Some of you are doing mobile. But a lot of you got something with a, with a back-end component, which means you got to think about operation. That's called build for operation. That's logging. It's tracing. It's monitoring. It's observability. It's security. It's privacy. Uh, got to build for operation. And when things don't work out, uh, you need to look at your process and understand what it is about your process that allowed... Uh, a defect to escape into the wild. That's called incident analysis. And you want to create, a, you want to set up an environment where defects are, rather than being tested out, are not put into the code in the first place. And that sounds yep. simple, right? Well, yep. The solution to not having bugs? Don't write bugs. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. There's a whole bunch of different ways people put bugs into their software. One is through programming. One is through misunderstanding requirements. One is through uh, error-prone design. And one is through just systematic misunderstanding of what needs to be done, such as the very famous not using... Um, not using, oh, geez, now the name of it's basically doing string concatenation on, on oh, SQL queries. Right. Yeah. Uh, not, what, what is the phrase I'm Parameterization for? or? Yeah, uh, parameterized queries. Uh, that's a classic error. And some people just don't know that that's a mistake, right? And so that's a, that's a systemic error. So there's a whole bunch of ways that bugs can go in that can all be systematically prevented. You can't prevent every bug, which is why you need the incident, incident analysis. But you can have an attitude that bugs happen to other people. You can have an attitude that when we get a bug, that means that something went wrong and we're not just going to take it lying down. You do all these things. And there's, you know, I did mention it was a 500-page book. Um, <laughs> you do all these things and you can create software that's high quality, low defects that you can ship whenever your, your customers ask. Fantastic, fantastic. So, uh, have we missed anything? I think feel like we've covered uh, a large number of the bullet points on the uh, table of contents and such uh, through the book 
the art of agile development. Are there any additional resources that you might want to point users to or, or point listeners to on uh, how they might learn and develop their own agile practices? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the book, of course, uh, nearly every section of the book ends with further reading. And so there's a lot of additional reading in the book. And there is one thing that we haven't really discussed that I want to just touch upon, which is that um, Agile is not just about being adaptive, but also about putting people first. So the, the process is in service of the people, not the other way around. And there's a whole lot of stuff about how to work together well as a team and respect uh, respect each other's boundaries, create psychological safety, and so forth. Uh, that's also in the book that we haven't really touched upon. Um, but if you were to ask me to choose a favorite topic, it would definitely be the delivering <laughs> stuff, uh, The um, <laughs> as you could probably tell. But if you if you want to know more, um, best place to start out is probably my website, jameshore.com. Um, a short link directly to the book homepage is jameshore.com slash S slash A-O-A-D-2. That's for Art of Agile Development, second edition. Um, or you can just go to the homepage and there'll be a link to the books. And there's, if you scroll down, there'll be a picture of the front page and it'll take you to the homepage. Uh, that will take you to a whole bunch of things. Obviously a link where you can buy the book, um, a link to the Discord server where we're having some amazing conversations about uh, Agile ideas. A uh, link to a book club discussion we're having on Zoom every week with some, some, uh, some again, some really fantastic people, people who have, uh, colleagues of mine who have been around for many, many years. Uh, a lot of experience are having these great, deep conversations. And I'm also putting the uh, recordings up on YouTube. So all that, a place to start for all that is uh, jameshore.com. Uh, find the book uh, on that site and uh, and that will take you to all the rest. So as we as we wrap up, uh, one uh, one question we ask everyone uh, is 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 there any advice that you would uh, give to folks who are just getting started or looking to level up their career? Uh, what 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 have you found to be um, uh, excellent? Yeah, I got I got two answers for you. Uh, one if you're junior and one if you're senior. Uh, first off, if you're more on the senior or, or, uh, looking to move into, to that sort of role, um, or about to move into that sort of role, understand how your work creates value for the business. If you have that ability to understand not just what you're doing, but the why and can really engage with that, why the people around you will notice. And, um, if, uh, and you can do that when you're joining a new company, you can do it if you're already in a company. But asking, hey, how does this have value? And then speaking to that at every opportunity is a really good trick. If you're junior and looking to uh, in, improve your, your role in the organization, uh, people may not take that kindly. Uh, you know, they sort of, sometimes people really appreciate the why, 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 and sort of the, the innocent, naive, the naive questions. But uh, something I want you to think about, particularly if you are, just starting to think about how you might want to move into a senior role. That is that senior devs improve the capability of the people around them. It's not about shipping the most code. It's about enabling your team to ship the most code. That is also, it's not just about you when you're a senior developer. So uh, if you are looking to move into that kind of role, think about what can you do to improve the capacity of the people around you? Awesome. Those are excellent. Where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're working on? Main thing is on Twitter. Um, I am at James Shore on Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn, although they spam me a lot. So I, I prefer Twitter. Um, 
Or if you really love everything I have to say, if you go to jamesshore.com, there's a little, uh, there is an RSS feed and you can also subscribe to a mailing. Yeah, I know, RSS in this day (laughs) and age. That's amazing. (laughs) Uh, The... uh, uh, or if you if you don't want RSS, you can sign up for a mailing list, and I post the mailing list when I put new stuff out on the website. All right. Thanks, James. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. This has been great. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. That was James Shore. James teaches, writes, and consults on Agile software development. He's the co-author of, of the classic Agile How-To Guide, The Art of Agile Development. He is also the co-creator of the Agile Fluency Model, a highly regarded guide for Agile adoption. And he is a recipient of the Agile Alliance's Gordon Pask Award for contributions to Agile practice. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. <laughs>